So a number of years ago, I, um, I went to a 40th birthday party for a friend and a, and a fellow church member, uh, Christy Kreider. Many of you know Christy. She sings in the gospel airs. And um, I remember it was a May uh, sun, or Saturday, and Megan and I had been to Steeplechase. It was Steeplechase Day. So it had been a long day. If you've gone to Steeplechase, you know it goes on and on and on and on. And then we went to this party uh, that Saturday night to celebrate her birthday. Well, the party was fun, but it came time to leave. And we were back in the house, and we were walking uh, towards the front door, and this guy who was um, uh, kind of uh, drunk and loud and arrogant, he took his keys and he threw them at me. He said, hey man, uh, it's the black Mercedes sedan. Just move it up to the front of the driveway. So I caught his keys and I kind of sat there, had this moment of zen, you know, like, what do you do? Thinks you're the valet boy, right? So... I just turned around and I walked out of the house and I got his car and I moved it up to the front of the driveway, just like he asked. I didn't tell him I wasn't the valet guy. Um, well, so I left and I was like, wow, that was interesting, wasn't it? And um, the next day the criers told me, you know, you move that guy's car up to the front of the driveway. It was really funny, but about an hour later, a big storm swept through Nashville and a huge limb fell off of our oak tree and landed on his hood. And I have to admit, uh, that kind of was uh, satisfying a little bit to hear that that happened to him. <laughs> Today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about humility. Because I believe that if you seriously study the teachings of Jesus, you will see that humility is at the forefront of the gospel message. It is right in the middle of so many of Jesus' parables and, and teachings. But I also would say that I think humility seems to be lacking in our culture. The prophet Micah has given us some of the most familiar words in all of scripture. You remember what he says, Micah 6, 8, he's told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. You know, I've always loved this verse because I think it is a, a beautiful explanation of a healthy life of faith. And I think we can all agree on what it means to do justice, the way we serve and show compassion and give back. I think we can all agree that our world needs more kindness and we can help by being kind to people. But what does it mean when Micah says, walk humbly with your God? What does he mean? Jesus gives us a parable. Two men, Pharisee and a tax collector. They go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood by himself and he said, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, the thieves, the rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but he was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humble, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Two men in this parable, both are religious. Both go to the temple to pray, but they have completely different mindsets when they do. Now here's the irony. If you understand the first century context here, the Pharisee, was viewed as a religious leader. 
the one who had it all together, the one who everybody was supposed to to follow and emulate. He was the one who was actually arrogant and self-righteous. But the tax collector, who was despised and resented by many in the first century, he was the one who showed contrition and humility. So once again, Jesus is taking conventional wisdom and he's turning it over on its head. Last Sunday, towards the end of the message, I, um, I mentioned David Brooks's book, The Second Mountain, that came out uh, years ago, right before I turned uh, 40. I read it about the time I turned 40. And in that book, he says that on the first mountain of life, the, the mountain where we focus on establishing ourselves and climbing the ladder and being successful, he says there's basically five lies that we believe. The first, he says, is career success is fulfilling. And not all people, as we know, find success in their career. It's nice if you do. Secondly, the lie is, I can make myself happy. It's the lie of self-sufficiency, but many of the things that we do in life actually don't make us happy. The third lie, says, is life is an individual journey, but it's not. Life is a journey that we share with other people, with our spouse, with our family, with our friends. That's what gives it meaning, because we are social creatures. The fourth lie is, you must go and find your own truth. This is the lie of postmodernity that everybody gets to figure out their own truth. But there are some universal truths that need to be taught and passed down. The golden rule is a perfect example of that. And the fifth lie is that rich and successful people are worth more than poor and unsuccessful people. Well, Jesus debunked this. This is a lie that our culture tells. Jesus did not agree with that. He, he said that we must treat all people equally regardless of what they have or don't have. There's nothing wrong with having money and, and, and being wealthy. It's just that you can't treat people differently based on what they have or don't have. But then you shift sometime in life to the second mountain, which requires a shift in thinking about how we see the world. And sometimes we get to move to the second mountain on our own, and sometimes something happens that just throws us there. So, for example, it's a divorce or it's the suicide of a family member or, or a close friend, or it's, a, it's an illness that we have to battle that we didn't see coming, or it's losing somebody suddenly, or it's an addiction, or alcoholism, or, or bankruptcy, or unemployment. There's all kinds of things that can happen that will cause us to stop and say, is this all there is? Isn't there more to life than this? Why do I still feel so empty and unfulfilled? I've, I've accomplished a lot, I've earned money, I've been successful. And so we, we grow sick of the rat race and all the competition and, and trying to prove who is the most successful. We figure that out. That, that really gets old. There's always somebody who has more, is more successful. So the second mountain requires a significant shift in our priorities. If the first mountain, Brooks says, is about building up the ego, defining the self, the second mountain is about shedding the ego and losing the self. If the first mountain is about acquisition, the second mountain is about contribution. If the first mountain is elitist moving up, the second mountain is egalitarian, planting yourself amid those who need and walking arm in arm with them. I shared that with you last Sunday. But I think that on the second mountain, humility becomes much more important. Yet we all face obstacles in life that keep us from living a humble life. What are they? Well, there's some obvious ones. Competition. We live in a competitive culture. 
Starts when the kids are young. Coach six-year-old flag football yesterday, and the coach on the other team, I know him, he's a great person, but my God, he wanted to win so bad. And he didn't. <laughs> Competition lies at the heart of capitalism. It drives the free market, but people feel like they, they have to be assertive and aggressive and intense to make it in this world. And in many ways, you know, that's true. People will do whatever it takes to get the next deal, to grow the bottom line, to beat out the competitor. And when the economy feels like it's struggling, then this makes it even more stressful. There's a lot of competition as it relates to lifestyles, keeping up with the Joneses, being grateful for what you have in life is really important. But many people can't do this. They only want to think about what they don't have, what others have. Another obstacle to living a humble life, I think, is ego. And ego is an over-exaggerated opinion of ourselves and our own importance in the world. Ego is often linked to success or lack of success to what we have accomplished. Ego causes us to think that we are the center of the universe and that we are always right and that others need to, to learn to acknowledge that. Ego and pride are like this, closely related. And I've told you over the years that I think there's two different kinds of pride. There's healthy pride. You take pride in how you look. You take pride in your health. You take pride in your family and your work, pride in your church. And then there's unhealthy pride. And unhealthy pride it means that, that, that basically uh, you, you just think that you're God's gift to others. You're maybe better than others and, and that you're indispensable. Well, that's what, the, that's what the Pharisees showed in this parable. And there's also a big difference between having confidence, which is necessary, and being arrogant. There's a line somewhere between self-confidence and arrogance, and we have to figure out where that line is. Both extremes are unhealthy, and humility is how we temper that. So competition and ego, and then the third obstacle that I would say is, is this thing that we call self-righteousness. And oftentimes, religious people are actually the ones most guilty of this, we certainly see this in the Pharisee who goes to the temple to pray. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people, the rogues, adulterers. And here's what I do, God. I give a tenth of my income. I'm always in worship. Man, I'm such a good person. But self-righteous people think that, that they are superior to others, that they are never wrong. And so self-righteous people like to list their own accomplishments, name all the good things that they do. And it gets really annoying really fast. And if we do that in our lives, other people would say the same thing. So now I want to get to the important question this morning regarding this parable. How can we live a life of humility? How can we walk humbly with God, as Micah says in chapter 6? How can we work to not put ourselves at the center of the universe? Let me leave you today with a few thoughts, and there could be many more. The first one when it comes to trying to live a humble life is we must acknowledge first and foremost that selfishness and narcissism have become a big problem in our world. And social media, unfortunately, has only made it worse. We live in a culture of constant self-promotion. It's an ecology built around the concept of me. So, we must remember what C.S. Lewis said about humility. Do you remember his quote? He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. 
How do we do this? We show genuine interest in other people. We ask questions and we listen. We call somebody, not just when we need something, but we call them to check on them, to see how they're doing. You know, growing up as a, a preacher's kid, there's lots of phrases that stick out of my mind that I heard my father uh, use over the years. And one of them is this, there's no smaller package than somebody all wrapped up in themselves. Do you know people who, when you're with them, they only talk about themselves, their family, what they've accomplished? They show zero interest in your life. To live a humble life, we have to show interest in other people, genuine interest in other people. Secondly, we need to recognize that we don't always have to be right. Nobody is right all the time. You know, we've been doing this, this series on Wednesday night called Faith and Civility in the Public Square. And we've had a bunch of different speakers. We've had John Gear, we've had Mayor Cooper, Samar Ali, David French. We're going to have a conversation with our governor. And the whole, the whole purpose is to say, how can we get back on track as a culture? It's not about which side are you on or what is your view. It's how can we get back to a civil place where we learn to talk to each other and listen to each other? Because nobody is right all the time. And everything does not have to be a, a, an all-out war between liberals and conservatives. Former Tennessee Governor Phil Bredesen, former Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam, Democrat, Republican, have just started a podcast together. Have you, have you heard this? And it's predicated on the words of former Tennessee Senator Howard Baker, who once said, remember, the other guy might be right. So here are two former governors and they're committed to coming together to talk about some complex issues facing our culture, and they are both recognizing that they may not be right all the time. Nobody wants to be around somebody who thinks they are right all the time. I'm not right all the time, that's my wife. Not in marriage, not in friendship, not anywhere. Our world needs reasonable people who are willing to compromise on certain things so that we can actually accomplish things. There is give and take, there is conversation. Nobody wants a friend or a spouse who feels like they have to be right all the time and go out and prove it. Self-righteousness is a turnoff. The Pharisee said in this parable, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. Here's what I do. He was basically justifying to God why he was so great and why he was right. And my guess is the Pharisee was one of those guys who had to be right. Third, Living a humble life means that we have to find the courage, we have to find the courage to face our character flaws and our shortcomings, and then we have to go and, and address them. Jesus said, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you fail to recognize the log in your own eye? First, take the, the log out of your own eye, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Of course, it's always been easier to point out what's wrong with other people. Let's point at the people in leadership and tell them why they're doing something wrong. You got a better idea? No, but what you're doing is wrong. The Titans got blown out Monday night. Did y'all watch that? <laughs> we left the elders meeting uh, like seven. 15 to come home and um, somebody sent me a text message about an hour and a half later that said, hey, can we go back to the elders meeting? <laughs> but when they asked Mike Vrabel, the press asked him what happened. Do you remember what he said? He said, we got out coached, we got out played, and we have to do better. He owned it. He didn't blame others. 
He didn't pass the buck. We'll see what happens here in a couple hours, right, if they can bounce back from that. But so many times we are afraid to own the mistakes that we make in life. Uh, so we're afraid to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Or, or we, we change our mind when the evidence proves otherwise. That's called strength, not weakness. You know, the reason that, that I've pushed the Enneagram over the years at Woodmont is because I just see it as a, a tool for spiritual growth. It gives us insight into where we struggle but here's your assignment for this week. I'm going to give you an assignment. I want you to find two people in your life that you trust, that you know have your best interest at heart. And I want you to ask them, tell me three things that I do really well. And tell me one thing that I need to work on and watch out for. Three things that I do really well. Let's build up first, build up first, and one thing that I need to be aware of in my life. And if the person loves you and they care about you, they'll gladly tell you three things and they'll gladly tell you the one thing. We should go to battle with our ego because our ego often gets in the way of addressing the things that we need to address. Lastly, to live a humble life means that we have to pick and choose our battles wisely because we can't and we shouldn't fight them all. People who try to fight every battle quickly wear themselves out it seems like in our culture, you know, there's always a battle to fight, something to argue over. And frankly, most of them are not worth it. I'm not saying that you don't articulate what you believe. I'm just saying that nobody wants to be around a person who is confrontational all the time. People who are confrontational all the time, they get avoided like the plague. We go to battle with our pride. We go to battle with our ego. We go to battle with our character flaws, but not always with other people. You know, I have lots of friends who are lawyers, lots of church members who are lawyers, and they're really good lawyers, but they tell me that, that they just get tired of the fight. And they're being paid to fight, right? Paid to argue. But some things in life that we get so worked up over are just not worth it. You know, somebody once asked a wise man, hey, what is anger? You know the response he gave? He said, anger is a punishment that you give yourself for somebody else's mistake. Andrew Murray has one of the best definitions of humility, and so I want to I leave you with this this morning. He said, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is for me to have no trouble never to be fretted or vexed or irritated or sore or disappointed. It's to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that's done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed and despised. It is to have a blessed home in God where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and be at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around me is trouble. Micah says, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. Jesus says, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen.